Welcome to the Amazon Legends Podcast, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became powerful sellers, also experts specializing in helping sellers, and both former and current Amazon employees who will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here's your host, Nick Urison. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. My guest today jumped into building private label uh, on Amazon right after high school, which was about a decade decade ago now. And he currently oversees selling operations across all marketplaces, which we are going to hear about for Meridian and Lumen Skin. These are two brands that he's responsible for. He's also an avid marathon runner. So welcome to the show, Rob. Uh, Rob, uh, Rob Shad is my guest, and uh, I'm happy to have you here. Great. Thanks for the intro, Nick. So um, when we talked, we had a, a conversation about uh, multiple marketplaces, uh, and you told me that this is something that you're doing really well right now. So tell me what that is, and, and uh, let's get into it. Yeah, around uh, multiple marketplaces. Uh, most people are just focused on the U.S. I see the biggest opportunity for sellers to be uh, getting outside of the U.S. and uh, crossing borders and going international. So uh, by multiple marketplaces, you're not talking about other marketplaces like Walmart and others. You're talking about international marketplaces. Yes, international Amazon and non-Amazon marketplaces. So obviously in Europe, Amazon's the leader. Um, in Latin America, um, you have Amazon as the leader in Mexico. You have Mercado Libre. Um, in Brazil, you have Amazon as the leader. You have Mercado Libre as the leader. But you go out to, to Asia um, and the leading platforms, um, again, depending on market, are Shopee and Lozada. And those are the two, two core marketplaces out there. So uh, when you are, let's say that, let's go back to the very beginning. When you uh, took over the job and said, okay, we're going to open up to other marketplaces, international marketplaces. What is it that, that you're looking at? What is the qualifying criteria of where to go? Yeah, so uh, I was in a unique unique position when I, I took over managing uh, uh, Meridian and, and Lumen. Um, both brands uh, weren't on, on marketplaces. They both had very strong D2C presence, uh, but very little marketplace presence. Um, so the initial thing uh, I looked at it as like, okay, where, where are our customers based out of? Um, both of those brands have a skew very heavily to being able to service customers uh, throughout the world. Um, so yeah, that was, the, that was the first step is figuring out where else are our customers actively buying from us right now. And for us, uh, Europe was a big market. So it was Australia um, and, and somewhere like, like Mexico, which is a big market for us now. At the time, uh, we weren't able to service, but um, again, using tools like Helium 10 um, and, and the like, I uh, was able to scope out um, market potential down here and realize that, oh, this, this could be a great marketplace for us to, to go into. Um, we just have to put um, some time, effort, and energy into um, being able to operate down here. So I, I just heard you say something interesting. Strong D2C presence, mm-hmm. but weak marketplace presence. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Explain that a little bit. 
Yeah. So uh, the the direct to consumer, both of those brands are very very heavily direct to consumer brands. Um, just funnel for gaining customers was uh, Facebook, TikTok ads to website, and then uh, for for Lumen, it's a, a men's subscription. Um, skincare line. So ideally, again, we're getting customers on our subscription basis. And uh, when I joined, um, marketplaces wasn't a focus. So more or less, there wasn't, uh, it, it just what was non-existent whenever, whenever I joined. So I had this prime opportunity to scope out and um, really take advantage of our, our brand presence, our brand likeness, um, all of that organic traffic we were getting from um, um, brand spend and be able to use that to kick off, kick us off on marketplaces. So uh, by strong D2C presence, you're talking about they were, their sales were primarily coming through their website. Correct. And promotions were geared towards driving business to the website. Correct. How about any offline sales? Do they have product distribution through stores and others? Nope. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Um, a much more omni-channel brand right now. But um, back two and a half, three years ago, when I when I started, it was all um, all through the website. Okay. So did the company actually decide that they wanted to get into marketplaces and then bring you in, or uh, once you came on board, you decided we should be on marketplaces? Yeah, um, it was it was being dabbled, but that was the the main reason I, I got brought in. I see. Okay, so so now it's a clean slate for you as far as marketplace presence. So, mm-hmm. uh, and the company is based in the U.S. Yep. And first marketplace you decide to enter, which one was that? Uh, obvious Amazon Amazon U.S. Amazon um, U.S. Where, yep. Biggest, biggest percentage of customers are at um, and just easiest when your inventory is already there. So so walk us through how that played out because what I want to try, try and do is kind of uh, bring the pieces together like a puzzle because if you imagine the whole marketplace operation is a big puzzle across all marketplaces, international and otherwise. Uh, you started with one small piece. So when you started building the Amazon presence, uh, how many listings did you start with? Uh, roughly about 20 to 25. Um, we, we have a, I would say like a, a, a modest, modest skew count, small, modest skew count. Um, yeah. So roughly 20, 25. Yeah. So this 20, 25, these are unique uh, child skews or, do, or are they parent skews? Uh, mostly, mostly child, mostly child. Uh, all child. Yeah. Yeah. So for the listeners benefit, parent skew is you have one main skew, which cannot be sold on its own, but it has variations under it, like different sizes, different colors or different, whatever case may be. So what matters is the individual, what we call variations or the child skew, right? Because those are the ones that generate revenue. So usually whenever you're talking about unique skews, it's always best to focus on the child skews because each one will produce a, a different kind of performance. So 2025 is a, is a pretty good number. So you launched right away with 2025 or you did it in stages? Um, so launch strategy, um, because again, we, we did have a strong brand presence. 
um, again, because we're spending uh, six figures a month on, on advertising on, on other platforms, there's people just inherently seeing those ads and um, looking to come to Amazon to purchase because that's the shopping experience that they, they prefer. So um, we did inherently already have an audience that was looking for the product. And because of that, uh, made the call of like, okay, let's just put all of our SKUs out at once and put them all out onto the market. Because again, there's already people coming to look for some of these items. So let's make sure that they can get these items if they're coming to look for them. Um, and then from there, um, chose the the top sellers. And those are the ones we focused on gaining reviews, worked on gaining Amazon ranking, worked on SEO, worked on our content. Um, and, and again, took that bigger catalog and then really brought it down to five, six core SKUs. And even today, those SKUs drive like 80% of the revenue for the brand, even with a 40, 50 SKU catalog. So uh, very much like 80-20 role um, in terms of focus, though, again, uh, makes sense to have the whole catalog when, again, you already have an established brand with uh, people um, actively looking for for the, the goods you're selling. Sure. So, um, so now you've got your 20, 25 SKUs online and they started to produce revenue so um, in terms of timeline when mm-hmm. did you decide okay it is now for us to go to another marketplace yeah um let's see amazon launch was in uh, around november uh towards q1 of the next year we immediately we basically started to look at international and um, the easiest one was Canada. It's, you know, right across, up and right across the border. So that was the first um, market that, that we looked at. And then additionally in, in Europe, um, getting into the UK and EU marketplaces as well. So getting into Canada. So obviously Amazon has offers this, what they call unified <coughs> sign-in, right? So when you sign up with Amazon in the US, you automatically have, Canada and Mexico marketplaces under all one account. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's, that makes it easy in terms of the logistics of it. Uh, how many SKUs did you launch in Canada? In Canada, we just brought our top sellers um, initially. And, and even still, we really only push our top sellers up there um, with, with COVID. And this is like right before COVID. Uh, uh, in Canada, they got really strict on inventory limits. And that was something we've been fighting with the last two and a half years. Um, so yeah, uh, we just focus on our top SKUs up there because we don't want to put inventory of, again, that bottom uh, bottom 20% that aren't, aren't going to move any volume, but we'll just take up storage space. Sure. So let's talk about the, I guess, the fulfillment aspect of it in terms of maintaining inventory. So you are using the same... FBA model in Canada, I assume, right? Correct. So talk to us about the, the logistics of it. So let's say that you need to replenish your inventory, mm-hmm. or at least start from the beginning. You are opening in Canada, and the same FBA enrollment applies mm-hmm. in Canada, or you have to do it separately? Yeah, same, same FBA enrollment, um, though... Uh, I'll, I'll talk on this, and um, I think this is one thing that uh, definitely tripped me up at the beginning, and um, isn't isn't the easiest thing to solve for. Uh, anytime you go international, then you're uh, you open yourself up to a whole new list of um, regulations around uh, product compliance, around tax compliance, around import compliance, and 
um, those those are actually the initial things we had to worry about. Is but, uh, the account was already open when we, we opened the, the US account, but it's like, how do we actually get product there? How do we get it through customs? Um, and, and yeah, how do we get it to Amazon? It's it's not just being able to ship it there. Whenever you're uh, whenever you're uh, importing goods, it's uh, way more in depth than just shipping like single e-commerce orders. Yeah. So yeah, I want to dig into that because. What you are doing is really you are importing merchandise into Canada, but you are a company in the U.S. So how, how is that happening? Ooh, there are obviously taxes, duty, you know, anything that is associated with the category of products you're bringing in. So how does that work when you, because in the U.S., when you create an FBA shipment, it's easy enough. You put in, put in the quantity and then out comes the labels, yeah, you put in the information of how many pieces in each box and you're done. The carrier comes, picks up the package, packages and you're done. But for international, tell us the logistics of it, how that works. Yeah, I would say there's three core things to think about um, around international. And I think more or less this, this should cover the majority of concerns, um, at, at least in the the marketplaces I've, I've operated in. Uh, number one, product compliance. So being in the cosmetic industry, there's every single country has their own unique product compliance. And frankly, the US seems to be the easiest one out of all of them. Um, so that's the first thing to look at. Um, and product compliance is a few different things. So one, are the ingredients in the, the goods actually able for sale? Like for example, um, if you have XYZ ingredient and in the US, you can only have X percent of it, but in Canada, you can have only half of that. Then maybe your formula isn't good to be able to, to import. And then that would access that product right there. Um, so that's one check on the, the product compliance. Number two is usually packaging. So even in Canada, while English is the main language, um, they require for cosmetics to have English and French on the packaging. Um, so that's uh, another step where you'd have to get uh, certain aspects of your packaging translated. And then more or less, you can do something like an over-label um, to ensure compliance on packaging. So that that would be like step one before you even look into the, the, the legal or tax side of it is just, can the product be imported and what do you have to do to import it? Um, step two is on the importation. So what needs to be done to import the product? Um, and again, this varies by country, but um, for Canada specifically, um, you need to obtain a business number to be able to import. You don't have to go set up an entity. We have to register with their government, get a, uh, a business, essentially, I forget the exact terminology, but a business number. And then that allows you to then import. And then step three on that is now that you're in that country and you have goods sitting in that country, do are, are you liable to any taxes? So in Canada, their, their GST, um, there's certain thresholds that you then become liable for having to, to set up uh, GST in your Amazon account and, and collect and remit that. So when you ship merchandise to, uh, to Canada mm -hmm. as an FBA shipment, when they enter the country, are there any taxes, duty, payable or not? Uh, dep depends on the product. Depends on the product. Yeah, it depends so on the product category, HS code, yeah. So there may be, there may, depending on the brand, there may be. And so at that point, obviously, you, you have to pay it, right, in order to import it. And then I guess that gets to be uh, somehow declared in the, in the returns, annual returns for that business number that you would have registered. Is that right? I believe so. Now, I'm, I'm 
by no means a, a expert on uh, individual <laughs> yeah. countries, yeah. but uh, yeah, in, in theory, in theory, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, because if you are paying something to the government, uh, it gets declared somewhere. So, uh, yeah. sure. So people will have to be aware of it. So it's not as simple as what we're trying to uh, do is really make people aware of some key things. It's not just click, 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 sign up, and then everything works, right? So there are some real life uh, transactions that you have to be dealing with and accounting for and blah, blah. So, and of course, uh, accounting for them on your books here in the US, that's another aspect of it. So, okay. So then the FBA shipment goes out, it gets, uh, so in your experience, what is the timeline? Uh, let's say you send an FBA shipment. Usually Amazon takes between a week to two weeks if mm -hmm. you know everything works right to mm -hmm. receive an FBA shipment and for the inventory to become available for sale. So when you send it to Canada, how much time do you need in order to start selling? The Amazon receiving time is pretty similar across the board. I mean, obviously that, that fluctuates based off of um, the 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 uh, amount they're receiving in every marketplace, but um, overall that stays the same. It all comes down to the the shipping time and what shipping options you're using from the states, and also time to clear customs. So again, you're you're, sh you're shipping loose parcel, then um, I think loose parcel will take us two weeks from the time we ship to the time it like finishes getting imported, then that gets delivered to Amazon. And then you have your another week or so to process. So even like loose parcel to Canada, roughly three weeks, again, no, uh, depending what shipping options, speed, um, uh, how busy customs are, how busy Amazon is, it's a few weeks to, you know, uh, six weeks, um, but a, lo a lot of variables there. Okay. So, okay. So you obviously, in order to create the shipment, you would have to create the listing. So let's talk about creating the listing. So is it as simple as just copy paste? Uh, so Amazon has this um, tool called Build International Listings. So you're actually able to more or less uh, have your information populated. Uh, you go into the Build International Listings tool, you turn on the Canada Marketplace, and you're able to more or less have that listing already there and, and done. Um, so yeah, they, they make it really, really easy to be able to uh, build build international listings. And does that get results or do you have to make some changes on it? Um, somewhere like Canada or the UK, um, the amount of changes are, are pretty minimal. Um, again, obviously people are using English. So uh, there are some fluctuations around SEO terms that you want to go dive into and take a look at. But if you're going to operate in a non-English marketplace, you, my, and this is like a really key learning. Um, again, it's all about conversion rate on Amazon. And one of the core ways to increase your conversion rate in non-English markets is to localize your content. Now, just don't go into Google Translator or use the Amazon translation service, which is, uh, again, I believe another version of Google Translator. Um, really work with like a local copywriter um, to create a, a copy that is written in the tone, in the voice, using the correct um, just terminology for that country. Um, and that's that was a really big key to helping to increase conversion rate in non-English markets. Okay, so you just said my favorite uh, phrase, conversion rate. So that, that, is, my, uh, that is what I always uh, come back to because 
as you know, conversion rate is key to the success of any listing. So, um, and, and if you improve your conversion rate, all the problems get solved. Your sales go up, your advertising is much better. So uh, can you share with us some conversion rates that you are able to achieve in the U.S. marketplace and then compare that for the same listing in the Canadian marketplace? Yeah. Um, actually, I was looking at these like last week. So the, these are uh, nice, nice and fresh in my head. Um, for our, uh, I'll, use our, I'll use our brand uh, Meridian. Our US conversion rate is approximately like eight to 9% and fluctuates in that range. Um, in Canada and UK, we see that to be anywhere from like six to seven. So a few points lower. Um, in the in the non-English European, that ranges about four to five. Um, Mexico um, uh, significantly less. I think we're like three to four. Um, but again, there's other variables around, like for pricing, for example. I'll, I'll throw that out there. I think that's um, something that's uh, very important in other marketplaces because again, the pricing that you're using in the U.S. doesn't always make you price competitive when you go into new marketplaces that have either different competitors or for that core category specifically. Some of the brands we compete with are, are are local to Germany, so they actually offer cheaper prices in in Germany than they do in in the U.S. And how do you feel about these conversion rates that you are achieving? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, uh, and what, what do you benchmark against usually? Um, I mean, we're, in the U.S., there's uh, a lot more benchmarks. Uh, people are openly talking about it. People are um, are, are posting about it. Um, we're able to get a little bit better read, though. Outside of the U.S., there's not a ton of conversation around it. Um, again, our our take on it is we're doing what we can to make our best listings possible and taking all of our learnings to make our best listings possible. So we think we're obtaining what would be a very solid conversion rate. So uh, nine, 10%, you uh, mm-hmm. feel that that's, that's a nominal conversion rate. I, I think in the U S uh, I think, what is it like 10 is essentially a benchmark. So slightly below the benchmark, but um, I think for the product category, it's uh, it's pretty solid. Okay. And uh, again, for the listeners' benefit, by conversion rate, we're talking about number of people that hit the product page mm-hmm. and how many of them ended up buying, right? That's what we are talking about. So um, and t- tell us how you, what is the source? You know, where do you go to find out what your conversion rate is? And then and tell us uh, some best practices. You know, how often do you check it? And how do, yeah. you, how do you check it? Yeah. Um, so we're, we're calculating that whenever we pull the business reports, um, just uh, sessions and based upon sessions and orders. So um, that's where we're uh, driving our conversion rate uh, percentage from. Uh, we're checking that um, pretty often. I mean, it, uh, use, uh, we, we have some custom reporting. Um, we're able to keep a pulse on that. Though, again, uh, I don't think it should be checked every single day and you should be making changes based off of stuff on every single day. You never know, like maybe you got a press hit and you had a bunch of um, uh, consumers come to it and it dropped your conversion rate. Um, again, maybe you had a lightning deal and you really increased your traffic, but again, you're ultimately 
potentially going to have a lower conversion rate with all that new traffic. So there's, I think, multiple variables that will put your conversion rate in flux. So I'm more or less like to look on it like a week to two week basis and see how it flows um, just on an aggregate over like uh, every like one to two weeks. Yeah. So my experience working with conversion rate is, uh, you know, what you said is, is exactly uh, you cannot just be looking at the conversion rate. You have to look at the conversion rate in conjunction with events surrounding the conversion rate. So you really need to be logging the events together with the conversion rates and then look at it in context. So if you run a campaign and then the campaign stopped, that, that's one thing. If you got mentioned in somewhere in the press or social media, whatever, you run a campaign in social media and draw traffic and then stop. Those things are all things that affect. Also, the other thing is conversion rate drops when the traffic to the page goes up, right? So the more people you bring in, the less uh, conversion rate you get, but uh, you end up with more sales. So these are all things. But one, both of those situations, we're looking at it together with events, is it all requires looking at it in perspective. So you really need to be storing your historical data that you've achieved. So it's no good downloading the report and say, okay, you know, because the business report will say enter the start date and end date. And then bang, it's going to give you whatever the numbers are during that time frame. But if you want to compare that to last week and the week before and the week before, that's you are on your own, right? <laughs> you have to figure out a way to do those things but that's where the, the answers are. And, and that's where you can draw some conclusions and say, okay, this worked, that didn't work, whatever the case may be. So I always say that conversion rate is key to most problems. Um, okay, so, uh, so now that you've opened up Canada and then you've got the listings, and how much time does it take from the moment that you say, okay, we are opening Canada to the moment that the operation kind of normalized. Good question there. Um, Canada specifically, uh, I believe we had about a three month wait um, for the for the business number. Now we had a little bit of a, yeah, that, that was just waiting on the Canadian government. Um, so yeah, uh, definitely expectations around like, and building into your timeline, like whenever you have to do compliance stuff, um, work, work to add that into your timeline. The once launched, um, well, what, what's lovely about Amazon is that reviews are shared across marketplaces. So we didn't start at zero. We started with a few hundred reviews on each product. Um, though, again, we, we started with zero traction in the marketplace. We had our we had our reviews ported over. We were able to take our learnings from our PPC in the in the U.S. and then bring that into Canada. And essentially, we we're able to start with you know a slight edge, and we we're able to use that, and we we're able to ramp up pretty quickly um, uh, in, in terms of uh, sales and revenue, or uh, yeah, re revenue. So, how many months is that? Uh, in terms of the ramp up, I would say about two to three months. Um, be able to get to a point where we're like, okay, we, we feel we've hit like a, we didn't hit all of our potential here, but we, we feel, we feel very good about where, where this marketplace is at. Okay. And then it just becomes routine and you have to somehow build that into your day-to-day -day operations. So, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, really what I'm hearing from you is you had to allow about six months 
from start to finish, from the moment that you decide, okay, we're going to go to Canada. I'm speaking strictly for Canada because, yeah, yeah. you know, there is, there is a saying that, that I, I, I heard many, many years ago, uh, uh, think global, uh, but act local, right? So, so uh, the moment that you start thinking action, then you have to go with each marketplace separately, not as a blanket thing. So Canada sounds like a, a six-month deal before you say, okay, this is what's going on in that chat, right? And yeah, six months for us, though, I, I will say, um, I don't know if you've seen the, the NARF program, North American Remote Fulfillment. I think in everyone's account, there was like a, a status like, hey, if your products are eligible, we're going to start shipping to Canada and Mexico. So Amazon is helping to enable uh, shipments to to Canada and Mexico as like a as an imported product. I uh, I live in Mexico right now, and it's it's pretty nice. It's um, there's just more abundance of products here than there was uh, six months ago, as Amazon's essentially help uh, managing a lot of the logistics. And again, this doesn't apply to every category. Um, presumably, we weren't able eligible. Presum- uh, first off, this this program wasn't around. Uh, three years ago. And then second, uh, cosmetics aren't, aren't eligible even today. So um, there are some product categories where, where people are able to get into Canada and Mexico now um, without um, the headache that they may, may have had before. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the brand, brand registry operation. So when you get on Amazon brand registry, that's strictly for the US market, right? So wh- how, what do you do with Canada? Actually, it, brand registry, um, uh, I don't say works for every market, but yeah, it works for, works for every market. So your brand registry in the US, that is then a, you can then have that apply to your, your European marketplaces, Canadian, Mex- uh, Mexico, um, all your other regions. So there is a bit of a legal situation there because when you have trademark protection, because at the end of the day, brand registry is for brands that have trademark protection, right? Mm-hmm. So trademark protection is per country because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, so, I mean, that's just to make a point, Nike, you know, Nike yeah. obviously owns the brand, so I can't use Nike in my products. So therefore, you know, if, if I ever do, Nike will sue me. But if Nike does not have protection in, let's say, for example, New Zealand, then I can use Nike all day long. Nobody can mm-hmm. say it because they have no protection. So, uh, so brand registry, therefore, is modeled after U.S. Patent and Trademark Office mm-hmm. um, for the U.S. brands. However, now that's a bit of a loophole I'm hearing. If you do not have brand protection or trademark protection in another foreign market, just being on Amazon brand registry, does that protect you from somebody else using your brand? Good question. Haven't ran into that situation. Um, yeah, yeah. So, it's, yeah. I don't know the answer to it either. It's a, it's just what I mean. Legally, it, to me, I'm thinking legally. If you have no protection for a brand mm-hmm. in a market, anybody can use it. So um, I'm sure Amazon will try and protect the brand. But at some point, you know, when if it comes right down to it, the, there is no legal basis the way I see it. But again, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Okay. Yeah. So at, uh, at the very least. I was going to say, at the very least, they give you all the uh, EBC storefront. Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you, yeah. Yeah, you have full advantage to take, 
to, uh, to use that in other marketplaces. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, you'll be way ahead of anybody else who tries to do anything. So, uh, so now that Canada is running, so what was your next international market? Uh, the UK, and then following the UK, um, Germany, France, Italy, Spain. So let's talk about that because usually that's the European market. Uh, mm-hmm. that is considered as one, but there are multiple marketplaces, but it's, it's all controlled from one central location, right? Is that the case? Uh, Post-Brexit, uh, two. So uh, pre-Brexit, we were able to send all of our inventory to the UK. And then from the UK, they would then use the, the, the pan-European program and then ship to the other European marketplaces. Uh, Post-Brexit, that, that stopped. So essentially, we what we do is we send inventory to two locations and use FBA in two locations. So we send um, uh, inventory to the UK, and then that services the UK. We send inventory to Germany, and then Germany then um, essentially through the pan-European uh, pan-European fulfillment program will fulfill four orders from France, Italy, and in Spain. Okay, so. Let's talk about UK. Uh, now, UK is the easiest one because it's another English-speaking country. However, the, you know they are very different, right? So, mm-hmm. how do you then? Uh, let's walk through the same steps. First of all, the logistics of it. So, uh, you you mentioned step one is product compliance. So, uh, do you run into the same kind of challenges there, or is it easier, harder? Um. I would say the the UK product compliance isn't overly difficult. I mean, obviously, it's going to fully depend upon category. And I don't want to say like a blanket statement, like "oh, this is this is easy," but um, the the product compliance, at least for cosmetics, um, wasn't wasn't anything like out of the ordinary. So, and then how about the importation aspect of it? Importation. Um, so. Whenever we went to enter these Amazon markets, we already had a European 3PL we worked with for website orders. Um, so this made, we already had product in Europe. Uh, so essentially this made the importation a lot easier. This was something we were already, we were already doing. Um, so that was, that was done pre my time and uh, don't know all. But is it, is it a separate company importing the products into the UK or doing the same thing nope. that you do in Canada? Uh, no, we're, we're, we're still the uh, importer of those, of those products. So it's the same, uh, the same U.S. company operating in the U.K.? Originally U.S., though we, <laughs> we, we, we have like a web of global entities to help. Um, okay, I understand. To help, yeah, so to there, help support that. that. Yeah, we, we, can, we can get very, very detailed here, but again, I can uh, I, I can speak on so much, but we have a uh, again a really smart finance and, and ops team yeah. um, behind this that um, again is able to support this global uh, yeah gl- global presence. Okay, so uh, but what I'm hearing from you is working with a three PL is key because that's that's you know when it comes to Canada you can replenish from the US, but when it comes to the European operation you cannot replenish from the US anymore. So you have a 3PL that will help you with that. And then um, I'm 99.99% sure you have another entity that it will handle the importation into the UK, pay the VAT and all that stuff on coming in, if any. And then, you know, that, that has to be part of it. 
so launching the listings, uh, talk to us about launching the listings. Uh, what are the things that you do in terms of actually getting a listing up and running? Um, yeah, in the UK, pretty similar to Canada, we were able to leverage build international listings um, to get everything ported into there. Um, though we, we actually, and uh, to pick a note out of that, we actually turned that service off um, for the UK as we wanted to, essentially we wanted to set up, um, we wanted to change our copy in the UK as we found the terms in the UK were different than Canada enough to a degree that we wanted to redo basically all of our SEO for the UK to, to match a little bit more of the lingo there. Um, and what we found is that with build international listings, if we updated stuff in the UK, then that would update, update content across the board. Um, so we had to set up new SKUs in our catalog. Um, once we found this out, um, uh, use the same ASIN, but set up new SKUs. So our content would just exist in that, in that marketplace. So when you set up, so when you create the SKU in the US, you have your ASIN. When that goes to Canada, is it the same ASIN or a different ASIN? Uh, We use the same ASINs throughout all of the marketplaces. Um, And that's using the same ASINs is critical for getting reviews ported over for that product. Okay. Then how do you manage the UPCs? Because UPCs... Are the UPCs the same wherever it goes or is different UPC for different market? Uh, for us specifically, uh, we use a lot of FN SKUs. Uh, one, it's required for uh, uh, most cosmetic categories. So we have to use FN SKUs anyways. So we just set up on, on, on FN SKUs for a lot of the products. We do have one product that uses UPCs and we're able to use that UPC in every single marketplace. I see. So, okay, because most manufacturers don't want to use the, the, the FN SKUs are also referred to as FBA stickers, right? So you put yep. them on the packaging. So uh, that's basically another ID and it's supposed mm-hmm. to cover the UPC because Amazon doesn't want two identifiers on the packaging. They want one. So. Uh, and most manufacturers don't want to do the work. Uh, they just want to run with their UPC. So in your case, uh, you are actually using the FBA stickers. What was the reason for that decision? Was there practical? Uh, we were, uh, for cosmetics, we were, we were required to. Our listings got flagged and we could only send in under um, oh, stickers. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so uh, that means that you can have multiple identifiers for the same ASIN, depending on where it's going. So that makes it easy. Correct. Yeah. Okay. I wonder how that would work if FN SKUs were not required. So that's another question. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be much easier because uh, the, the one product they were able to use UPCs on, um, we don't have to relabel anything. Um, we're, and, and that UPC, we're able to set up with that is with the the US ASIN and US uh, UPC in every single marketplace. So yeah, it's just yeah. it's the same UPC everywhere. Yeah, it would be much easier. Okay. All right, so uh, tell us about so uh, the UK operation is shipping to 3PL and then replenishing mm-hmm. from 3PL, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I mean in theory you could ship direct from your US warehouse. But if you just look at your economics and it's just, it's going to be 
almost impossible to to make money if you're doing shipping uh, shipping from there. And I mean, granted, if you have the inventory space, you could ship directly to Amazon. Though again, we have the ability of a, a 3PL um, to be able to store stuff out, which is cheaper than storing at Amazon. So are you then tracking the inventory levels in your home base, mm-hmm. Canada and three UK 3PL and UK FBA locations. So you are having to track all those, right? Yep. So tell us a little bit about the logistics of how one manages this, because it's it sounds to me like it's a fairly complex systems-oriented operation, right? Yes, very, very complicated. So something that even uh, we haven't fully nailed down yet. Um, I mean, I mean, a big thing is uh, a big thing for us that was actually really difficult was getting access to the the Amazon API. So we have our own um, in-house engineering and, and data team as well, but getting access to the API was just very difficult. Um, so we're using, I think, a, a few different third-party um, uh, companies to help pull pull the data. And currently, we're in the process of building out um, custom uh, inventory reporting that will just pull out sales velocity and inventory levels per marketplace and then help us create predictions uh, on what we need to send in. Okay. So would you recommend anybody start doing these things without having some kind of a systems infrastructure? So I think the thing about international as like a a solo seller could be very difficult. Um, You 100% need a a team behind you and uh, need support um, to, to be able to go global. Yeah, because uh, a lot of entrepreneurial operations, they just want to jump into as many places as possible, get the most exposure. Yeah. But before you know it, it can become pretty complex to operate. And then, of course, the worst part is you don't know how much money you're making, if you're making money, and how much inventory you're carrying, and comparing your profitability versus how much inventory you're carrying at any point in time. So that can it's it's fairly capital intensive operation, right? Mm-hmm. So how much time did it take for you to from the decision to go into the UK market to normalizing the operations? Normalizing the operations, okay. Um, so decision to enter was in about I think this was like January 2020. Uh, it took us a good three to four months. Um, to get our account approved. Oh, that, that's one thing about Europe. Um, and we, I believe we actually, we do, we do have our US, US entities for all of our European accounts. Um, again, the, the importing though, uh, just depending, depending what you're importing and how and, and what that structure is, is going to dictate whether you need a, uh, to get an entity in that country or not. Um, but yeah, we, um, uh, yeah, it took us about three to four months just to get the, the paperwork um, set up. Uh, that, that's one thing I learned is that they are incredibly strict with their account verification in uh, the UK and Europe than in the US. So just just something to note, like you need all your documents to match, um, all the addresses to match. Like if one detail is off, they'll say like, hey, send us back. And it was just a lot of back and forth to get that, to get that figured out. Um, but once that was figured out, um, yeah, typical like a month or two working to get everything the catalog up, get inventory in. So that takes us to about June, about six months in. And then I believe we were fully ramped up for like Black Friday, Cyber Monday, um, just in terms of like where we felt comfortable, where we felt we should be at, and then had a had a great uh, first year like Black Friday, Cyber Monday. 
So we're talking nine months. No, no not nine more, more than almost a year. Almost, yeah, almost a year. Oh my God. So uh, that, that pretty much is your lifespan in this new operation, right? <laughs> the US. It's a lifetime uh, achievement for you. So Kisla uh, launched the US market and then in Canada is about six months. And then uh, would you recommend anyone to launch Canada and UK at the same time or focus one at a time? I mean, at the beginning, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff is like the, it's like your legal tax compliance, which again, if you have the bandwidth, I think can be, can be taken on at the same time and can be, can be handled across multiple marketplaces. So um, yeah, I think something like that, it's like, if, if this is something that uh, a brand is looking for, um, like proactively don't say like, oh yeah, this is our timeline. This is going to take two months to get up. Um, if you do have ambition to go, like start looking at all that stuff now and start building out what that timeline for your brand looks like. And again, it's going to be unique to every single brand because of the, uh, mostly just like the compliance variables. Yeah. So, uh, so this is very interesting. We've never covered international marketplaces. Obviously you've done others, you know, other than just Amazon, but uh, Amazon takes the biggest piece of the pie. So uh, it's, it's a good idea to cover it. So, Did you, when you took on this position, did you know anything about expanding into international marketplaces? I sold zero dollars outside of the U.S. <laughs> so, so this was yeah. your first first experience, really jumping into all this complex situation. Yes. Yep. So that brings Great. me to my next favorite uh, discussion area. So, why does somebody like you? take on such a complex role in a company? So a, I, I don't think I fully knew what I was getting myself into, which is now like, I, I went from like, oh, I just did private label selling in the US to running like a like low eight figure uh, revenue stream across 15 different countries. Um, did, did not know I was getting myself into that. Um, but at least for myself, as I have always been like a highly, highly ambitious person. Um, I decided not to go to college and uh, like how I like to say it is I went to Amazon university and just uh, started selling on Amazon uh, right out of high school and built private label brands um, was again, always just trying to, to push my, my learnings, my skill sets, getting to like the best I possibly could be. And I would actually uh, led me to go join a, a consumer goods startup was just being frankly bored of like, Oh, I could build brands into this like six figure range, but how do you like take something that's six figures and build something to nine figures. And like uh, at 22, I had that like knowledge gap and I'm like, okay, I need to go like go solve this knowledge gap. So let me understand though. So I just heard you say, I didn't know what I was getting into in all fairness. Did they tell you that's what they would expect you to do, but you just didn't understand the ramifications or they didn't no, no, no. tell you that. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it was a, it was a, it was a fast growing startup. My, my interview process was one week started the next day and had a like 30 minute onboarding. And it was like, Hey, just like go start selling uh, on Amazon and getting our presence up and generating revenue. And that, that was, oh. that was a kickoff. And so they didn't tell you that your job was going to be to go into international marketplaces. 
no, uh, but pretty quickly, <laughs> pretty quickly, we're like, oh, this is like a great opportunity. Let's like go figure out how to do it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, always wanting to push yourself. So where where is that? Why why do you feel you need to do that? Uh, this is something that I've I've actually thought about, um, and I would say reflected on more in like the last year. And I really think that comes down to playing like sports growing up. So like from like five years old, I always had like the dream of like wanting to go play in the MLB um, and always like push myself competitively in, in baseball and basketball throughout like grade school, high school. And I think that's really where I gained a competitive nature. And then I was going to play baseball in college. And when I decided like not to go to college, I still had that like very highly competitive nature. Um, and then I was, I was interested in business and that's where um, I think I just changed that competitive nature from sports to business. So was that competitive nature also nurtured at home or how was that? Uh, how did your parents take that? Yeah, uh, I would say highly nurtured by, uh, by my dad and uh, very, very grateful for, for his impact. Um, I grew up in an entrepreneurial household. My dad owns a, a small, small business. Um, and from a very young age, was working in that small business. And then he brought a lot of lessons around sports as well. So just the combination of being in a, again, like an entrepreneurial household and um, being shown like, oh, this is like how you work hard. If you work hard, you go achieve results. And learning that feedback loop at a young age, I think, again, is super paramount to where I am today. And uh, how about, do you, do you have any siblings, brothers, sisters? Uh, younger sister. So is she also as competitive as you? <laughs> uh, not, not, not as much. We, uh, we, we, skew, we, skew, we skew a little bit differently. Okay, so there was no, at least no competition between the two of you. No. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it, it sounds to me like finding the competitive nature of sports It was just a home for you that was already within you naturally, yeah, mm -hmm. working with your dad and seeing, because, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and you know how it is, it's always struggle. It's always struggle. And you're always, you're, you are competing against everybody, including yourself. So uh, I think that was already part of your, your DNA from very young age. And then when you went into sports, It sounds to me like you know, that was like the natural environment for you. Would that be right? Yeah, pretty, pretty spot on. And then uh, you, you move on to business because sports you can't do forever. And then uh, you are in business and the same competitive nature goes on, this time with skills. Mm -hmm. So what do you see as the... So what is uh, a, a challenging situation now for you with this whole international thing in that competitive nature yeah um it's just like there's a lot of unknowns um i, I mean just pre-starting pre-starting this role i was purely just doing um building a brand specifically on amazon so like i had like a little like a teeny bit of operations experience mostly like seo paid advertising branding that was like my main experience so i think like a, a big thing was was just like there's a ton of unknown and i just like went and went and figured it out 
Um, but just, yeah, just more or less was like, oh, hey, how do we do this? And then just went on Google and tried to figure it out. Um, so I think that was like uh, the, the, the big, the big, I think your question, the biggest, uh, uh, biggest challenge was just like, there was a ton of unknown and was never really scared of the unknown, was in a, a culture that was a uh, company culture that's okay with failing, okay with um, uh, stuff not succeeding, which makes it a lot easier to be like, hey, let's go try this. Um, it definitely makes it a lot easier to be like, hey, let's go try this. But um, yeah, there's just so much unknown. So there is two different things that I'm picking up because one is one is the the competitive aspects of something. For example, you know, lifting weights, you're lifting 50 pounds and you want to lift 60 pounds. You want to lift 80 pounds, 100 pounds, 200 pounds. So it's, there is no unknown there. And then there is the unknown. And that's a risk, right? That's a risk taking. So which one appeals to you more? Is it doing better and better of something? Or is it the, the risk that is the unknown taking on that taking on that risk and then prevailing. Uh, which one is more appealing to you? I think I think it's a balance. So I, I have like a very I have, I have a pretty regimented like gym, um, uh, just fit, physical fitness gym uh, routine, but also the the marathon running. So that's like very known, very structured. But I think that balances out the unknown, <laughs> the unknown in life too. So uh, I'm just thinking myself, which one will appeal? Uh, I guess uh, taking on the unknown is, is never boring, right? It's always yeah. picking it up and uh, it comes with a risk. But the other one is, is pretty much, you know, being able to do it and then complete it. So uh, I guess everybody, so uh, looking back at your, your roots, uh, which side appeals to you more? Because balance is, of course, you know, you want yeah. yeah. If something always appeals to you more, which one appeals to you more? Uh, it's it's definitely the unknown. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, the, the the unknown, like th- that's what excites me. That's what that's what gets me up in the morning. Uh, when whenever the uh, for for example, whenever the unknown starts to run out in a in a business or in a in something that I'm pursuing, that's usually when I get bored and look for like the new thing that has like a lot more unknown to go after. So you definitely uh, are in. Uh, following the footsteps of your, your dad because entrepreneurs gravitate towards the unknown. <laughs> it's always the risk takers. So uh, that's great. So I think you've given the profile of the perfect person who, who would be ideal to take on market international marketplace operations. Because it's always unknowns, whether it's the uh, red tape or the operational aspect of it or numbers or anything. So that's great. So tell us um, how people can reach out to you and give us your contact information. We'll put that on our website, but uh, give us your information now if anybody wants to reach out. Yeah, uh, best of all, probably just be LinkedIn. Um, I'm sure you'll put my link in the bio, but, and I believe I, I, I was born Robert, but everyone calls me Rob now. I believe my LinkedIn's Rob Shad, um, but you can, you can confirm that in the bio. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Rob. This was great. We've, we've covered a lot of different aspects of Amazon, but uh, never international. And this was very valuable. I'm sure everybody will appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for having me on, Nick. Had a great time chatting. All right. Thank you. And this brings us to the end of another episode. And I'll see you next time. 
Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon Legends. <laughs>